Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Editor's Podcast. I'm Paul Hauptman on behalf of the Journal of Cardiac Failure. And today we will be reviewing an interesting paper on a music intervention appearing in the July 2020 issue. Before we do, I will briefly outline some of the other papers that we feature. To begin with, we present an interesting investigation into driving habits and reaction times in older patients with heart failure using a simulation program. Impaired driving among patients with heart failure is an important but probably underappreciated problem. Several papers relevant to kidney failure are being published, including a report comparing outcomes between combined heart-kidney transplant and sequential kidney transplant in recipients of heart transplants using UNOS data, and also predictors of renal failure in patients treated with the total artificial heart. We present a brief report on safe ambulation of patients with femoral balloon pumps and a fun account of what is termed impeachment cardiomyopathy as a new form of Takotsubo's. A series of important COVID papers is also presented, including an in-depth accounting of ECG manifestations and a research letter about the use of pulmonary artery pressure monitoring in ambulatory care during the pandemic. But now on to our discussion about a novel paper entitled Beneficial Effects of Listening to Classical Music in Patients with Heart Failure, a Randomized Control Trial, performed by Francesco Borai, a researcher in music medicine, Dr. Giuseppe Sana, Dr. Eleonora Macha, both cardiologists from Sassari University in Italy, and other colleagues at Sassari and in Milan and in Bologna. Briefly, 159 patients from four centers with New York Heart Association classes one to three, and both HEF-REF and HEF-PEF, were randomized one-to-one to receive a music intervention, basically an MP3 player with a list of 80 selections of great works by composers such as Bach, Beethoven, Debussy, Verdi, Chopin, Mozart, and Mahler, for a minimum of 30 minutes a day for three months. Patients were requested to listen to music while at home in a resting position. The tempo and rhythm was set up or were set up in a range between 60 to 80 beats per minute because, as the authors argue and may discuss with us today, this range mirrors the human heart rate and facilitates relaxation. Patients in the control group received standard heart failure treatment. Compliance was good at the start, but fell to about 50% by month three. Perhaps because the trial was performed in Italy, the playlist given to the patients reportedly met their preferences, reaching a mean satisfaction score of 8.2 out of a possible 10. With that background, and before we review the results, I would like to ask Dr. Borai to discuss the underpinnings of the study. What made you decide to pursue this really interesting line of investigation, and how did you decide on the playlist? Good morning. I am Dr. Buray, I'm a researcher, expert of music medicine. I studied the effects of music with a rigorous methodology through RCT and crossover trials. I studied the effects of live music with singing on hemodialysis patients and the use of saxophone oncology patients and hemodialysis patients. All these studies have been published in scientific journals. Therefore, I had never studied the effects of recorded music. So I asked myself, uh, what is a population that has a chronic uh, symptomatology and that could be influenced by the effects of recorded music? The outcomes of patients with heart failure 
still remains unsatisfactory due to comorbidities. EGF shows depression, anxiety, cognitive impairment, and sleep disorders. So I think it is important the introduction of a rigorous protocol for music treatment to decrease the severity of symptoms and improve the quality of life. My intention was to do a study in which music was used by patients at home and easy to listen to music. I was very interested in the use of classical music because in Italy this music is also well known by the elderly population. So I have designed a playlist of classical music. The musical pieces had to have a meditative ambient sound with relaxing atmosphere. The soft and the calming sounds have been designed to evoke tranquility and joy for our patients. These, my playlists, have been designed to evoke music that could negatively stimulate the sympathetic outflow, canticholamines, or to increase the circulating cortisol, adrenergic hormones, and growth hormones levels. The, our hypothesis in which the music intervention could be integrated into the normal care protocol of HF patients with a very low cost burden and a very simple for use by HF patients. For me, it was very interesting to analyze with the RCT study. Well, we certainly congratulate you on on taking the plunge, if you will, because it's the novelty here was really what attracted the attention of the editors and and the results. And in that context, Dr. Mocha, welcome. Uh, can you review the findings from what we say in, in the U.S., 30,000 feet? I looked it up. It's about 9,000 meters. What were the changes in the KCCQ, the other instruments, and how important do you think those changes are clinically? Good morning, everyone. Thanks for your question. We basically uh, explored the outcomes in our report investigating heart failure-specific quality of life and genetic quality of life. We used the Minnesota Living with Heart Failure questionnaire to explore the heart failure-specific quality of life, and we used generic uh, scores such as the SF12, the sleep, uh, the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, and other anxiety and depression scales. Lastly, we used the MOCA, which is the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, a score to uh, measure patients' cognitive status. Regarding the Minnesota Living Without Failure questionnaire score, the total score indicates a statistically significant change in, in both groups from T0 to 66. And uh, it is also worth noting that the fact that both uh, the initial T0 and the final T6 scores were almost the same in both groups and also we notice statistically significant difference uh, only at time at T3. About the other generic quality of life scores, basically we highlighted that uh, they, were, they were better in the experimental group, which received music. And in particular, sleep uh, in about the, the, the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, the in the music group, patient had reported lower score with statistically significant differences at T1 and T3, 
And same was uh, for the anxiety and depression scale. Finally, about the MOCA scale, which is a cognitive score, we found out that overall the scores from both groups were below the normal cutoff value, but statistically changes throughout the group were uh, detected in the, in the experimental group, which is the group that listened to music. So were you at all surprised by these findings? No, I wouldn't say surprised, but these uh, are like promising results. I mean, we in some way expected the results. We wanted to confirm these with our study, basically. Well, I'd like to maybe ask Dr. Burai another question, and, and that's more a uh, mechanical one, because it, it could potentially inform us about the design of future studies. So what roadblocks did you encounter in carrying out this study, and how do you propose to deal with a drop in compliance? Because presumably, if the drop-off is 50% at three months, the effect uh, of the intervention may be muted over time. In home setting, uh, it's very difficult, uh, the compliance in this study for the researchers and for the patients. The best setting for, for our is this, the hospital for the compliance in the music studies. Uh, this is a problem in design. Another in future studies, uh, for me, it's very important uh, to analyze the effects of music in uh, hospital setting because in a home setting, uh, the compliance is very difficult for our. It's very difficult to control this aspect. So in next future, I think uh, to design a new study and high CT study with a pharmacologic approach uh, that is very different uh, from this approach. In a pharmacological approach, the music is like a sound cell, uh, a molecular sound, a sonoric aspect. This is a a form of treatment uh, like a pharmacologic uh, treatment. In future, this um, aspect, this design research is very important to analyze in uh, rigorous methodology the effects of music in each of patients, for my opinion. Well, I certainly agree with that. Of course, compliance is a major issue with pharmacologic treatment, and perhaps uh, one could combine uh, text reminders to listen to the music and other avenues of communicating with the patient in order to improve the compliance. Let's use this as the starting point for our discussion with one of our editorialists. The JCF has had an interest in holistic treatment approaches to manage heart failure. For example, we've published two small studies reviewing wand therapy, mainly sauna, and mind-body interventions. But the current prospective study takes this to a new level. In that context, it's a pleasure for me to first introduce Dr. Jerome Flegg. Dr. Flegg is uh, in the Division of Cardiovascular Sciences at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. He's also a friend and a longstanding member of the editorial board of the JCF. Dr. Flegg, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to uh, be here. In your editorial, you make some really important points about endpoints. Obviously, uh, more rigorous measures are needed, but from a pathophysiologic standpoint, I'm really interested to know if you believe that these initial findings make sense. 
they do make sense in terms of uh, you know the improved quality of life and uh, improved sleep, decreased anxiety and depression. These are all uh, more in the psychological uh, health realm. And I think they do make sense because uh, this is more or less, uh, you, you could consider this a form of perhaps relaxation therapy in the sense of uh, getting the 30 minutes of rest every day uh, during which they were uh, getting uh, music of their choosing. I guess to me, the main, the main questions are whether or not some of the more physiologic measures that we like to examine in patients with heart failure uh, would also improve to the same extent. Things like, uh, for instance, uh, uh, physiological measures, uh, catecholamines, uh, cortisol, uh, other biomarkers, and then heart rate, uh, blood pressure, heart rate variability, and last, certainly not least, uh, their physical function in terms of exercise capacity. And these are areas that were not addressed in the current study. Right. So I think that's a good segue into discussing what next steps might look like and how you might design the next study. What would you like to see as more convincing proof? And in that context, how would we consider uh, both the dose, which I guess is exposure to the music, and the type of music in this study? Yes, I think the latter question is is perhaps more challenging. I, I would think that you would probably want to design the study with music of the patient's choosing, but uh, trying to make sure that that music would have some type of uh, relaxing quality as opposed to uh, loud rock music, perhaps, or something like that that might actually excite them. I'm not sure that would accomplish the same mission. So I, I, I would probably try to start with some type of music that the patient considered to be uh, relaxing for him or her and just kind of putting their mind at ease and making them feel better, but relaxed, not necessarily revved up. And then the most important thing, I think, in terms of the uh, uh, measurements and the, the intervention would be that, of course, it would be a randomized trial in the control group if the intervention group, as part of their music listening, is actually having a quiet rest period during which they're listening, then I think the control group would need a similar sort of quiet rest period in order to sort out what's the effect of the music versus what's the effect of just a rest period. And that was something that was not not really addressed in this study, where the individuals in the control group uh, went around went about their usual routine, and uh, there was really no monitoring them uh, to, to be able to tell what they were actually doing uh, throughout the day. I suspect that most of them did not have the same 30 minutes of quiet rest that the intervention group did. Uh, I mentioned, of course, doing uh, making physiologic measurements. Uh, I think activity monitoring, just a, just a simple act actigraph or accelerometer. Uh, would be useful, and maybe a diary as well, to be able to actually see what are the patients doing uh, during the 24-hour period, particularly, you know, during the period where they're not listening to music, what are they doing? And is the control group doing, you want to be sure the control group is, is doing the rest, so I would try to build the rest period into the control group so that the only thing that really differed was the music intervention. And then I would make measurements of uh, the biomarkers that, that I mentioned, uh, uh, BNP, the natriuretic peptides, of course, is a, a hallmark of uh, heart failure, being, those being elevated. I would certainly want to measure those. I would probably also want to measure catecholamines, uh, you know, uh, adrenaline, epinephrine, and norepinephrine, and cortisol, which are also uh, important and, and certainly are elevated in patients with heart failure, typically. I'd like to see whether the music would bring those down. 
I would also make measurements of heart rate and blood pressure and uh, probably also heart rate variability, which is a, a good measurement of the uh, balance between parasympathetic and sympathetic tone. One would postulate that uh, a music intervention would improve, would increase the parasympathetic function and would perhaps decrease sympathetic input so that the patient was in a, a truly more relaxed state uh, from a physiologic standpoint, not just a psychological standpoint. And then uh, last uh, but not least, uh, I would probably incorporate at least uh, some measurement of their physical function, like a six-minute walk test, to be able to determine whether or not there's any actual improvement in their exercise capacity. I'm not sure that I would really expect that to occur from an intervention like this, because it's not really a physical conditioning, but it would, I think, be useful just to round out the uh, numbers, round out the measurements that are made so that you had both the exercise as well as the uh, more subtle sympathetic parasympathetic balance measurements and of course the biomarkers. Yeah, I think those are really wonderful points and I agree that I think my sense is that a lot of this is going to be mediated by the parasympathetic nervous system. Um, your enthusiasm for the study makes me wonder whether the NIH might be uh, interested in even in funding such a study. So I'll come back to you that offline. In the meantime, I'd like to introduce uh, Renee Fleming. It's an absolute delight uh, to have you join us and of course it's a little unexpected and unusual to have a JCF editorial written by an international operatic superstar, but we did it with clear intent. For example, we were interested in understanding how the findings of the Barai study may fit in terms of the underlying concept of sound health, the initiative you spearheaded between the NIH and the Kennedy Center. So to begin with, as someone who, while training as a cardiology fellow, frequently purchased standing room tickets at the Metropolitan Opera as a sort of therapy, I have to ask you, how important do you think the type of music is in these type of interventions? The authors made a point to offer a selection of music that was not likely to raise blood pressure or heart rate and perhaps also appeal to their Italian patients. Thank you so much. I do think that the music is important. I don't necessarily believe it's the genre that matters uh, so much as the calming effect of the music. So a slower tempo. We know about entrainment. So for instance, I know when I'm listening to, to slower music, in fact, when I'm performing slower music, my heart rate, all my breathing slows down significantly. And that, of course, can have a calming influence as well. But I thought it was fascinating that these patients were in their 60s and 70s living in Italy. So Italy, of course, is the home of opera, as you know. And so they're likely to have been more familiar with the classical music at hand. I'm not sure that we could replicate the same exact results everywhere in the U.S. where there is less knowledge and, and familiarity with uh, even standard classical music and where people might actually find it irritating because they have a preference for something else. Maybe it's folk or maybe it's film music or Enya. There are other types of calming music. So I thought that was fascinating, but definitely the calming piece is important. So just getting back to Dr. Flegg's point, I suppose that if we were to design a, a study to take this to the next steps, we might consider a, a library of selections, all of which would presumably uh, help to calm patients, but would be in different genres. And maybe the patient would then decide which selections to choose from or which genre to choose from. I'd like to also ask you a question that requires us to take a few steps back, specifically based on, on the findings in the study. You know, what do you see as the future, you know, from your perspective, of research at the intersection of music and health? Uh, the focus of sound health, my understanding at least, has been 
on chronic neurologic disease. And, and now perhaps we can throw into the mix heart failure. Absolutely. I mean, it, the request to be involved in, in this paper with Sherry Robb, who I, I'm so happy joined me, came as a surprise to me because I hadn't really heard about any type of research that was relating to heart health. So I definitely think, first of all, you know, we're so interested now in integrative medicine, which is important because I do believe that we are whole people and that we are complex human beings. And that, of course, the, the emotional and the mental is also important. So sound health is really seeking to provide a platform for science with the public. So we want to advocate for the various findings that we already have. In fact, it's it's positive enough that Francis Collins and the NIH has devoted uh, another $20 million in funding for music and research, which we're all incredibly excited by. And we've also, with the um, UCSF, have are starting a, a sort of a resource center so people will have a place to go to really learn more about what we already know. And the need for data, of course, in our medical system and insurance system uh, makes it a little bit complicated because, you know, as what we just discussed, the fact that people's taste plays into this, that there are so many different factors that we as individuals bring to the table when we're trying to work with uh, some sort of music intervention. But I do believe that everyone's figuring out a way to do it so that we can all agree that these uh, interventions are extremely helpful. Well, I couldn't ask for a better segue uh, to Dr. Rob, uh, your editorial co-author. Dr. Rob is a professor at the University of Indiana, where she also directs the Indiana CTSI KL2 Young Investigators Program. Sherry, in our offline discussions, you were very specific in explaining the types of music interventions. So for our podcast listeners, can you delineate the differences between music therapy as a formal discipline? And then other forms of interventions using music? Sure. So a great question that centers on what is the training and scope of practice for professionals who are using music to address clinical health outcomes? And then based on that training, how does the use of music differ? So for our listeners who may not be familiar with music therapy, it is a specialized healthcare profession. And music therapists have training in music, psychology, and health and human development. So in the United States, providing clinical music therapy services requires a music therapy degree and board certification. But when we think about how music therapy differs from other uses of music for health, I think it can be really helpful to think about another discipline that most people are familiar with, physical therapy. So when you think about its broadest application, we know that exercise has positive health benefits. So I may work with an athletic trainer at my local gym or join a community baseball team. In the same way, we know that music has positive health benefits. So I might become involved in a community choir or take music lessons or attend a concert. And both of these examples represent what we might call recreational or community-based uses of exercise and music that really benefit our general health and well-being. But if I have a chronic or an acute health condition, it might require that I see a therapist. So if I have a mobility problem, I'm probably going to see a physical therapist who has specialized training in movement and exercise to address a very specific clinical need. In the same way, music therapists, if I get referred to see a music therapist, that person has specialized training in how to use music to address a very specific clinical need. So music therapists use a wide range of music experience 
that extend beyond music listening. So for example, a music therapist might use active singing to improve lung function or guided imagery for relaxation or songwriting for counseling. So both disciplines, physical therapy, music therapy, they take a highly individualized approach to treatment where that clinical need is driving the selection of the music experience. At the same time, healthcare providers also recommend or provide exercise programs for people who may have a specific health condition. For example, walking post-surgery, it doesn't require involvement of a physical therapist, but it does require oversight from a qualified health professional. And the same is true for music. So for example, preoperative music listening programs to lower anxiety might not require the involvement of a music therapist, but it does require oversight from a qualified health professional who can monitor that patient's response to the music listening experience. So I think in summary, music therapists use a wide range of individualized music experiences and other healthcare professions generally are using recorded music listening programs. But some of the most exciting work has emerged through collaborations that are currently happening between music therapists, other healthcare professionals, community-based programs, and researchers. So it's going to be very exciting to see where the research goes. Well, that's very edifying, Sherry. Thank you. You know, it, it also made me realize that I think on an everyday basis, uh, healthcare professionals use music to calm down. Anybody who's been in a cardiac cath lab or an operating room knows that a lot of times there's music playing uh, of various genres, which I think help the surgeon, the team, and so forth. So lots of opportunity here. And I've certainly enjoyed this in-depth discussion. And on behalf of the editors and the readers of the Journal of Cardiac Failure, I really want to thank all our guests, the authors who thought of the concept and carried out the study, Drs. Flegg and Rob, and of course, our very special guest, Renee Fleming, for participating in this podcast and for their interest in understanding better the remarkable nexus between uh, music and heart health. So check back for additional podcasts highlighting other important investigations published in upcoming issues of the JCF. Until then, this is Paul Hauptman, editor of the journal. Stay safe.